Hello, and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I'm your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we are really getting into the thick of things. Are we talking about Alexander the Great? No, not at all, not at all. But we have a very important episode today, a lot to get through, and really this is kind of going to set the, the map for what's going forward. So today, I'm going to be giving you an exceedingly brief overview of ancient Greek history, with a focus on classical Greece, specifically the Age of Hegemony. We're also going to be talking a bit about the Greco-Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian War, but mostly, honestly, we're going to be glossing over them. They are very important events, and like the Peloponnesian War is probably a series all its own. So are the Greco-Persian Wars, but we are getting an episode on the Greco-Persian Wars, which is because we basically have to kind of explain why Greece and Persia were seemingly always at war, that East versus West thing. But today, the main point of this episode is to give you enough context so that as we get going in this season deeper into it, you can understand why ancient Greece was able to fend off the Persian threat, but what sort of factors led to them being unable to do the same with Philip II of Macedon. And so there's going to be really a staggering amount of content, and this is still just like overviews of a huge swath of history. So in the show notes, I will include a link to a page that has more links on it for helpful YouTube videos, a timeline, and helpful articles that give you summaries of these periods and events as well. But first, programming reminders. If you want to stay up to date with the show, get some memes and context-free spoilers, of course, be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at highkey underscore obsessed underscore podcast and on Twitter at podcast. You can also follow the blog at highteaobsessed.com, which will be more related to this season than other seasons have been because I'll have to be posting maps and timelines and stuff on there as well. And then also, if you want to support the show, there's the Patreon you can subscribe to for $3, $5, or $10 a month, and there you will get two bonus episodes every month unrelated to the current season and two newsletters a month plus input into future episodes and seasons. And because I forgot to do it before, shout out to Cross, Vana, Cassie, my moth, Jake, and Edward for subscribing. Thank you guys. And this also might be a good time to say, especially if you are new to the show and potentially, I guess, if you're new to history, this show, while not over-the-top vulgar or graphic or anything like that at all, has some mature content. I don't believe this episode does, but like, I'm not going to show evil things in history as they crop up. So, you know, violence is going to come up. And in future episodes, as necessary, I'll try to issue trigger warnings for some of the things we're going to be talking about because they are heavy. Also, occasional swearing is going to take place. Again, nothing too bad, but sometimes you got to let out a little F-bomb. Now, with all that rigmarole out of the way... Let us proceed into the past. All right, guys. So intro out of the way, but let me let me get this in. Recording midst of a heat wave. Probably know that. No AC because got to keep the background noise out. So podcasting under duress right now. Anyway, I've always found ancient Greece fascinating. And it seems like that's the case for a lot of the West. We have a lot of we have a lot of founding mythology, perhaps particularly in the United States, that have Greece and Rome right at the center. In particular, in particular, ancient Athens and its so-called democracy are often held up as the great pinnacle of the ancient world. And it's funny, as I was preparing for this season and reading the various histories, depending on which polis or civilization a historian favored, they had either incredibly nice and flowery thing, flowery 
things to say about ancient Athens or the exact opposite, you know, just horrible things basically calling them out and calling out our mainstream fascination with them. So it was fun to read all these like pot shots at ancient civilizations taken on behalf of long dead rivals. So it's kind of nice. Anyway, ancient Greece. And then again, guys, very brief. Ancient Greek history is typically divided into ages and the ages are prehistoric Greece, which typically includes, you know, the late bronze age. We get into the Minoan and Minoan ages, the late bronze age collapse, all that good stuff. And so this is the period probably if we're honing in on the Minoan period as a starting point, let's start around 3500 BCE and ending with the late bronze age collapse at about 1100 BC. So because I have, I don't think I've said this, traditionally you probably know AD, modern dates, BC, ancient dates. And that's, I forget the exact thing, but I always thought of it as after death before birth of Christ, but CE is before the common era. CE is the common era, and I will be using BCE as is appropriate for a history podcast. Anyway, in the prehistoric Greece period, the Minoan period, depending what you want to call it, in this period, anyway, we see a lot of development of metallurgy. The Minoans specifically had a lot of bull artwork, you know, the Minotaur and all that, the myth of Theseus and the labyrinth. And then the Minoan developments were likely very crucial to the Mycenaeans, who established the earliest form of written Greek that we have, which is also called uh, Mycenaean Greek, also Linear B. And the loss of these, this writing uh, marks the end of the epoch and the start of the Greek Dark Ages. The Greek Dark Ages stretch from around 1100 BCE to 800 BCE. And again, not a historian of ancient Greece, so... This is very general what I'm talking about here. But my understanding is that relatively little is known about this period of history. Things were pretty isolated. We see the rise of oral traditions like Homeric stories, the Odyssey, the Iliad, and all that because of the loss of the written language. And we generally see a regression culturally in the Greek world. Next up is the Archaic period, the tail end of which we get into a little bit in this episode because, because the Archaic period is typically around 800 BCE to 480 BCE. And there are some important developments in this period. We get the the first Olympic Games in 776 BCE and then 480 to 470 BCE, which is basically the end of the Archaic period. That's when we see the second Persian Wars. So this is the period where ancient Greece kind of gets back on its feet. And it's here that a lot of what you probably would recognize as ancient Greece begins to crop up. We see gymnasiums, symposiums, sculpture, architecture, festivals, athletics, drama, religion, and styles of war advance. We see the first little tastes of democracy. We see the rise of numerous tyrants. Iron is starting to get into the midst a little bit. And a new alphabet. And we even see the rise, sort of, of a united-ish Greek identity, which, you know, the loyalty still overwhelmingly remains to the polis, belongs to the polis. But sort of a united Greece stands up to the Persians and prevails. Now we're into the period we're going to be focusing on, Classical Greece, which is typically grouped as 480 BCE to 323 BCE, beginning with the Second Persian War and ending with the death of Alexander. And there are little discrepancies depending on who you consult and which, I I don't know the reason, which is again, not an ancient Greek historian, but there are little discrepancies in which dates mark the beginning and ends of these ages. Broadly, this period saw an explosion in cultural creation, the arts, sculpture, especially for the time, pretty good democracy. Philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Diogenes, others, they're running around, you know, 
history is invented. Kind of a big deal. What does that mean? History is invented. Herodotus does written history, which is supposed to be truth and not myth. Another defining characteristic of this time is war, particularly interstate warfare. What I mean, okay, interstate is an oversimplification because there wasn't a Greek state as such, but interstate warfare, we see almost continual struggles between the various poli to establish dominance against one another. We see the developments of great alliances in an effort to establish hegemony, and we see, of course, the Peloponnesian War. And then obviously, you know, the focus of the show, the rise of Philip II of Macedon and the conquests of Alexander the Great. Next would be the Hellenistic period after the death of Alexander, which features the wars of his successors, all carving up the great empire amongst themselves, the diffusion and fusion of Greek culture with those of Egypt and the Middle East, all that jazz. Finally, there is the Roman period, which is when the Greek world falls under the yoke of ancient Rome. Yoke. I feel like I said that like a yoke. Anyway, ancient Greece falls under the control of ancient Rome. And then on and on and on, we march until we reach the modern world. Again, focusing here on the classical period, because that's what's really important. But we're going to touch briefly on the Persian Wars, because it's important for you to get a little taste of those before we dive in here. For hopefully the last time this episode, let me stress until I forget and stress it that I am not a historian of ancient Greek history. And this is a sweeping overview of a very interesting, complex period of history. This is going to be an overgeneralization, oversimplification, and very bare bones coverage of what was going on. And for more in-depth coverage, you can check out Thebes, the Forgotten City of Ancient Greece, Demosthenes of Athens and the Fall of Classical Greece by Ian Worthington, The Rise of Athens, the Story of the World's Greatest Civilization by Anthony Everett, which is good, but I would say it's like sometimes literally loud, fat, loud, biased. And Converse and Citizens, A History of Ancient Greece by Robin Waterfield, and then also the links I'm going to include in the notes. So classical Greece, as I've defined it here, stretches from 480 to 323 BCE. And you can also find it categorized as 500 to 336 BCE, which would be the, I believe, the first Persian War and then the rise of Alexander. So before we get into it, let's talk about some things quick. If you've been listening, I've used the term polis a few times. And if you remember middle school social studies or global, you might remember that the Greeks were not a united nation. and In fact, were far from it. They were really a group of self-governing city-states known as a polis. A polis was the community structure in ancient Greece. Each city-state essentially operating as a sovereign nation was organized with an urban center and then a surrounding countryside. Poli were marked by outer walls around the city, which were obviously used for protection. And there was also a, an area for trade known as the Agora, which was sort of the social and financial center of the city. And then, of course, there was the Acropolis, where the major temple of the city would be held. Acropolis meant roughly high city and was generally located on a hill, which usually was not a problem because Greece is very mountainous. The most famous example of this is probably the Athenian Acropolis, which is where the Parthenon is housed. Generally speaking, the majority of Apollos' population lived in the city itself and not the surrounding countryside. There were over 1,000 poli at there at Greece's height. Some were pretty tiny, obviously, but some of the more powerful or important ones were Athens, Sparta, Thebes, and Corinth. Delphi was also important because of the oracle there, but more on that in a later episode. Each polis was governed by its own leaders, but the form of government varied between each city-state. Athens famously developed a democracy where a relatively high, for the time and for the time only, a relatively large percentage of the population made laws and decisions. 
Now, in terms of actual population, this was a small percentage, but again, relative to their time, a lot excluded women, excluded non-citizens, excluded slaves, of course. Many other Poli found themselves ruled by archies or tyrants, especially in this classical age. Some weird hybrids of these systems also arose. For example, the Spartans had two canes and an oligarchic fucking hell. For example, the Spartans had two canes and an oligarchic council of elders. But Sparta was also just kind of weird in general. For example, they did not have walls because their soldiers were the, their walls. One of the key reasons the Greeks developed in this manner, you know, isolated individual city-states, is because of the rocky mountainous terrain of the country. Greece is pretty oddly shaped. If you've seen a map, you would probably agree. It has a lot of mountains, hills, valleys, and islands, which would sort of naturally isolate regions and areas from one another. A final reason behind the development of the city-states was the Greek aristocracy, which acted to prevent any permanent monarchies from forming. They defended the political and they defended the political independence of their cities vigorously. As a result, any individual who did manage to take over a city could only hope to do so for a short time as a tyrant rather than a king. And as we will see, the Greeks grew to be very fond of this independence. The development of the polis is one of the key elements of the classical period. Another is colonization. The Greeks would establish colonies all over the Mediterranean world and across Europe even, with some emerging as far away as modern France, which I think is pretty wild. Colonization arose out of population growth, amongst other reasons, and it was very beneficial trade-wise because colonies were able to maintain, often they maintained strong ties with the mother polis, and there was a nice trade back and forth stimulating the economy even further. Eventually, there grew to be more colonists in the various colonies than there were people in mainland Greece. These colonies also brought tensions with other peoples, most notably the Persians. So briefly, the Persians emerged from what is today Iran and proceeded to conquer most of what we consider the Middle East today. They did so pretty remarkably quickly, I would say, and ultimately carved out an empire that at its height stretched to India. Usually that meant like what is modern Pakistan, really, but at times it reached into actual India and then into Europe, including Egypt, which I always think is really cool because Egypt is really cool. And at times, you know, the, the vast holdings of this empire fluctuated. But in general, the empire was gigantic, obviously, and it brushed up against the Greek-influenced parts of the world, including the Greek colonies in Ionia. So Ionia is across the Aegean Sea and is in modern-day Turkey. Persians were generally pretty chill to the peoples they conquered, um, allowing local rulers to kind of keep on trucking for the most part, imposing a tribute on them, and they would have to report to like a Persian-appointed state satrap or local governor. They also allowed local peoples to keep worshipping their own gods, which is cool and obviously curtailed a lot of rebellions. Now, for a variety of reasons, I'm just simply not going to get into at the moment, the Ionian Greeks were just not rocking with the Persians. And so in 499 BCE, they made ready to revolt, and in 498 began hostilities against the Persian Empire. The Athenians and Eretrish. The Athenians provided some aid, along with the Eretrians, definitely mispronounced, sorry, provided some aid in this revolt. And although it was crushed, the rebels were able to sack the Persian city of Sardis, burning it to the ground in 498 BCE. However, King Darius I of Persia reacted and destroyed the Ionian fleet of ships at Lod and burnt, and burned the city-state of Miletus in 494 BC, and thus the Ionian revolt was crushed. There is, I've heard it both ways, Darius and Darius. I'm going with Darius, which will become important later. Anyway, Darius turns his eyes on Athens and Eretria, 
and vowed to make them pay for their involvement in this failed rebellion. He then set about invading the mainland of Greece from the north with a massive army supported by a massive fleet, and ahead of this massive army traveled messengers, envoys of the great king of Persia. They went to each territory, each city-state, demanding tributes of earth and water, and those that did so and went over to the Persian side were dubbed Medizers, Medizers, because the Greeks thought of Persians and Medes as one and the same. Again, more on that later. These envoys were pretty, and I'm not sure if like sacred is the right term, but killing of envoys or ambassadors was incent- was basically unthinkable to a Persian. So when the Athenians and Spartan killed those envoys sent to negotiate with them, it was pretty much a, like there's no turning back to this point. It's on. Anyway, the first invasion was stopped by a simple case of bad weather. It destroyed the fleet, and without the support of the fleet, the massive army had to retreat. The next invasion came by sea in 490 BCE, and they kind of island hopped across the Aegean. This army consisted of a much more reasonable, probably around 25,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry, which was nothing close to the staggering amounts the Persians could and would bring to bear on their foes, but still a very sizable amount more than any Greek polis could muster on its own. The Persians defeated the Eretians, destroyed their city, and set about to do the same to Athens. The Persians landed at Marathon, and the Athenians marched out with 10,000 troops to meet them. They had sent a messenger 140 miles south to Sparta, requesting aid, but the Spartans were unable to attend the battle because they were celebrating a religious festival. Despite being outnumbered basically 3 to 1, the Athenians prevailed, not quite routing the Persians, but inflicting losses around 7,000 while suffering less than 200 of their own dead. And again, more details to come on that in the Greco-Persian Wars episode. Now, Darius I dies before he can avenge this defeat, but his son Xerxes sets out with a massive army to do so. And this is where the famous Battle of the 300 at Thermopylae comes into play, where they uh, cross into the Hellespont via the boat bridge. And although Athens was burned down, the Greeks united in the face of this Persian threat and ultimately won the war in the sense that they freed the Ionian Greeks and forced the Persians out of mainland Greece and prevented them, like, got a treaty going so they would stop trying to invade all the time. Part of the reason they were able to do this is that the Persians burned down Athens, so they were able to claim victory that way, like they avenged the loss. One of the main outcomes of this was an increase in a sense of Greekness, and that extended beyond a polis, and there was a sense of the Greek as a people, as Hellenians, and that was a direct result of uniting to face down the Persian threat. So this is some time off, but in 380 BCE at the Olympic Games, an, Inthe- an Athenian intellectual and philosopher known as Isocrates, not Socrates, Isocrates, called for a pan-Hellenic, called for pan-Hellenism, which was basically like, we gotta unite the Greeks and we gotta go to war against Persia. Isocrates raised the point that Greek identity was no longer about race, but that non-Greeks who could adopt Greek institutions, live in a city-state, live under the rule of law, could rise above their barbarian status, and could become Greeks. Another important outcome of the Persian Wars, the Greco-Persian War, was the creation of the Delian League. The Delian League was the alliance of Greek city-states that united in arms to face down the Persian threat. After the war, that threat did still remain, because, you know, they may have held off the Persians, but they remained pretty much as powerful and as rich and as numerous as before, and they could realistically decide to take back the Ionian cities and invade Greece again at any time. So the lead continued after the war, and their, you know, taxes were collected from member states, though they were given a choice of either offering armed forces into like a collective army, navy type of situation, or paying a tax to the joint treasury. 
most states chose the tax. Sparta and other states left the alliance, forming a rival league, the Peloponnesian League, named for the Peloponnesian Peninsula where they lived. And again, to oversimplify things, this allowed Athens to dominate the other poli in the Delian League, which over time effectively turned it from an alliance into what we now refer to as an Athenian empire. Often when we talk about the classical age of Greece, we're really just talking about ancient Athens, which is kind of lame, honestly. But that's like they were the ones writing for the most part. They're the ones we have chosen to care about. But most notably, under the leadership of Pericles, there was a cultural and political flourishing in the city. It was during the classical period that Herodotus and Thucydides wrote a theater flourished as Estiles, Euripides, and Sophocles wrote tragedies, and Aristophanes, Aristophanes wrote comedies. Hippocrates lived during this period and is given credit as one of the first doctors. Socrates, who for good and for ill, is considered the father of Western philosophy, gathered followers, you know, he started doing his thing all during the classical period. So like we've touched on, a flourishing of culture. Also during this period, the Acropolis was rebuilt and lawn walls, which connected Athens to its port at Piraeus, were built. Piraeus was about five miles away. So that was huge because it meant the port and the city were connected and were pretty hard to invade in the event of a siege and Athens could continuously just be resupplied by the sea because they had such a superior navy to everyone else. Now, a lot of this building and flourishing was funded by lead money. So basically, apparently charging everybody at tats, taking that money, building, building, building. And we also see Athens starting to boss around their subordinate members in the lead, treating it not as an alliance, but as client states in an empire. Time for another ancient Greek idea, and that is hegemony. So this sort of power being concentrated in one group or one polis is called a hegemony. And it's basically when one polis grew strong enough to impose its will on the events of Greece as a whole. So a hegemon is a leader of a consensual alliance of the military forces of different poli, or um, it can also refer to a city-state itself. So it would be a poli at the head of, it could be a polis at the head of an alliance consisting of a number of poli that came together freely in order to address a common military threat. Here, hegemony is a system of alliances in which a state exercises power and leadership over mutually consenting states. So the Peloponnesian League, dominated by Sparta, was fed up with the Athenian heavy-handedness, arrogance, and domineering behavior in general. And this extended to members of the Delian League as well. Right? They were ready to go. They were ready. It was a pat watch for ancient Athens and Pericles at this point. And that brings us, of course, to the Peloponnesian War. So a fun thing about ancient Greek history is that, like I said, a lot of it is known from the writings of the ancient Athenians. So the Persian Wars, or the Greco-Persian Wars as we know them now, traditionally known as the Persian Wars because that's who the Athenians fought it. They're like the, the Persian Wars. And then the Peloponnesian War is called that because that's who the, Athenian, the Athenians fought again, the people from the Peloponnese. So it's sort of like how in America we call it the French and Indian War. Anyway, the Peloponnesian War was a war fought between 431 to 405 BCE, and it would shift the power from Athens to Sparta, making Sparta the most powerful city-state in the region. The war featured two periods of combat separated by a six-year truce. Athens and Sparta had had some beef in the decades before the war. They were never, you know, they were never boys. And prior to the Persian War, Sparta had sort of been the predominant Greek polis, but due to the Athenian abuse of the empire, it was on. You know, people were ready to see them fall. This was a pretty brutal war. There were atrocities on both sides. A terrible plague afflicted Athens, killed a lot of people, including Pericles. 
The Athenians blockaded the Peloponnese, um, but eventually the Spartans won the war and broke Athenian power both at land and most importantly on sea. How did they do so? Well, they had some help from, of all people, the Persians. And listen, I would love to get into the Peloponnesian War, but we can't. It's honestly probably a story for another season of the podcast. But what we need to take away from it is that the Athenians lost. They were forced to tear down their defensive walls, including the Long Wall. The, their democracy was replaced by an alchemy of 30 Athenians, friendly to Sparta. The Delian lead was shut down, and Athens was forced to reduce their fleet to 10 Tyremes. Now, within four years, they did overthrow the so-called 30 Tyrants, and over time would rebuild their fleet and walls. But for now, the Greek world was under new management. The Spartan hegemony had begun. The Spartan hegemony represents the peak of Spartan influence over the rest of the Greek city-states. And this is during the period from 404 to 371 BCE. Throughout the Spartan hegemony, Sparta used its considerable influence over the rest of the Greek world through both political and military means. And this period is the end of the Peloponnesian War and ends with the beginning of the Theban hegemony, which is traditionally marked by the Battle of Lutra. So at first, at least according to Kenneth W. Harrell in his lectures on Alexander the Great, Sparta was a much less heavy-handed ruler than Athens had been. And they consulted their allies before going to war. And while they did also impose attacks, it was, there were just better vibes in general, I guess, than there were under Athens. He compares Sparta at that point to ancient Rome in its early days, you know, sort of a central state at the head of a bunch of allies. The Spartan hegemony would see the rule of one of Sparta's most notable kings, Peleus II, who reigned from 399 to 360 BCE. If you recall, the Spartans had been forced to call on Persia for aid during the Peloponnesian War. And in return for this, Sparta had agreed to return the Ionian Greeks to Persian rule. But they weren't happy with this, right? It didn't sit well with them. They'd gone to war with Athens, proclaiming freedom of the Greeks. And now in turn, in their view, were turning them over to tyrants once again. And now the bills come due, right? It's 401 BCE. So what do they do? You know, they don't want to turn over these Greeks to the Persians. So Sparta supports a rebel to the throne of Persia. We'll get into this more in the Persian episode, but basically the elder Artaxerxes II comes to power and his younger brother Cyrus, who had before been a satrap, decides, yo, I'm going to die when this guy comes to power. Let me rebel and try to, I'm going to be king. And so Sparta supports this claim and they send some troops and there's also other Greek mercenaries involved. So Cyrus the Younger, with the aid of these Greek mercenaries, he wins the battle against the Great King, right? He defeats his elder brother, Artaxerxes II, in combat. However, Artaxerxes survives, even though his army lost. Cyrus's army wins, he's dead. Also, the leader of the Greek army, they were all, all killed. So the Greeks elect new leaders, including Xenophon, and they march out of the Persian Empire. And this is the famous March of the 10,000, as written about by Xenophon later. And it's often thought as thought of as an instruction manual on how to defeat the Persian Empire. And it is usually considered quite likely that Alexander and probably Philip read this before the Macedonian invasion of Persia. In 395 BCE, the Corinthian War breaks out between Sparta and an alliance of rebellious city-states consisting of Corinth, Athens, Thebes, and Argos. This war would last until 386 BC when peace was made as a result of new Persian support for Sparta against Athens. This peace, known as the Chains Peace, was cemented by the threat of Persian invasion of any Greek city-states that violated the terms of the treaty. So basically, 
Persia was like, play nice or we're going to yell at you and come in and smack you around a little bit. During this time, Sparta had enjoyed a basically uninterrupted run of success, no major military defeats, and to an extent they were cruising on reputation because just the threat of their army taking action was enough to quell a lot of disorder. So that's why, you know, Corinth, Athens, Thebes, and Argos came together. However, the Corinthian War ended in a strategic stalemate. You know, Sparta doesn't suffer any major defeats, but also doesn't inflict any on their enemies in a way that would weaken them enough to just be like, Sparta's 100% in charge. But because of the overhanging threat of the Persian Empire hanging there, the Spartans start to repeat the mistakes that Athens made, and they get heavy-handed alienate their allies, provoke a challenge from Thebes. Also, Athens regained autonomy and wrested control of the Aegean away from Sparta. So in 377 BCE, Athens organizes another naval league. So it does prove far weaker than the original Delian lead. A lot of them are pretty like, hey, we know how this ends. Fuck you. Get away from us. And those that do join up are kind of a hindrance. They're not really, they're a burden more than a help. Thebes under Philopidus and Amenondas end the Spartan hegemony in mainland Greece at the Battle of Lutra in 371 BCE. The Thebans basically use the Spartans' tactics against them and some 700 Spartans fall in the battle. Dedications are set up across the Greek world announcing, you know, Sparta's cut, they're done, new powers up on top. 362 BCE, a second battle between the Spartans and Thebans. Thebans win a major victory at Mantinea. Unfortunately, Epaminondas was killed, and with him, sort of any hope of a real Theban hegemony dies as well. So by 360 BCE, the leading Hellenic city-states are politically deadlocked, and all these decades of to oversimplify interstate warfare had left Greece exhausted. There's not a clear hegemon or a strong alliance structure capable of uniting enough of Greeks to stand against an outside threat, or at the very least, against the outside threat they would face. They were mistrustful of one another, there were too many rival leagues, with enough power to curtail one another, but not enough power to destroy one another and impose control. And so there you have it, an exceedingly brief overview of ancient Greece, with an emphasis on the events leading to their inability to stand up against the might of Philip II when he comes calling in later episodes. Next up, we're doing a brief history of ancient Persia, followed with an episode on the Greco-Persian Wars, and then early Macedon and the life of Philip II, father of Alexander. So, as always, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to hop on the podcast platform of your choice, drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews, all that good stuff, and be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Podcast and on Instagram at podcast. So, until next time, remember to be kind to your neighbors and not alienate your allies. Peace!